Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas and I am back after one week away from the mic. I missed you all so much and apologies in advance for the extra energy. I'm here because it's our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work and unpack the rest. Today we're talking to Lizzie Matusov, the co-founder and CEO of the developer onboarding startup Quotient, previously called Pathlight. Lizzie, welcome to Equity Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I love that we could do this in person, but we're choosing not to because we're two of the SF-based techies here these days. But it's still fun to be in your living room, office. Office, flex, second bedroom, flex, uh, workout room. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like SF. Yep. Tell me about the art on your wall because I am so interested in it. I love the one all the way to the right. And I'm, oh yes, gosh. I know it's a podcast and no one can see it okay. other than us. This is fantastic <laughs> because I love this artist so much. Her name is Laura Berger, and she there's a little studio in San Francisco, Hashimoto Contemporary Museum, and they'll sometimes oh, okay. feature different art. I think I told you about it when we got coffee. I was going to say, yeah. I think you recommended it to me. Yes, and so she was one of the artists that did a thing this, I mean, like four years ago, back before she got bigger, she like still did prints. And so I went and snagged a print and have carried this gigantic painting or print of a painting around to like multiple cities across the country now with me. Uh. Yeah. The travelhood of the traveling painting. And for people who are listening, it's this really cool abstract painting of what looks like people. It's like women dancing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I have a blurry background because I have not invested in any art for my apartment. So noted for the future, I should probably take that recommendation. (laughs) It's a great conversation starter. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for introducing me to some cool art. We're talking about so many topics that we both obviously care about or else we wouldn't be here. Everything from democratizing access to engineering cultures to what an engineer is expected to be versus should be and just diversity at large. We've been talking about that a lot on the show, but I was so interested in what you're working on because you're also approaching diversity from a neurological sense of how people work and the way we look for certain attributes in people. But before I get into all of the abstract, I want to start with really like your grad school essay. I'm not going (laughs) to say quotes from it because I know that you shared it to me and weren't (laughs) expecting it to. But I love this idea that you've been thinking about software engineering and attributes of people who are in the software engineering world for so long. So what can you tell us about this topic and how you kind of came upon it enough to eventually build a company around it? This is so funny because earlier today I was like, oh yeah, I sent her that essay. I wonder if that's going to come up on my equity <laughs> podcast. Here we are. Time it's to a speak great about essay. It. It's I'm a glad. great essay. <laughs> yeah. So the, the real sort of gist of it and really just broadly a topic that I've always been really interested in understanding is sort of what makes a software engineer. And to take a step back, I've always been told that I'm uncharacteristic for a software engineer. And it's probably it's probably a number of things. Like for one, you know, less than a quarter of engineers identify as women. Yeah. But then there's also this sort of stereotype of software engineers popularized through shows like Silicon Valley and the likes where you sort of think of an engineer as this introverted, reclusive type that sort of wants to be left alone to code. Sure. But the problem with this characterization is that it really does 
almost, I think, cripple innovation by ignoring the fact that software engineering is one of the most collaborative roles in tech. And great collaboration requires working with others and diversity of perspective. So just to give an example, like the process of merging code into a code base, it's called a pull request, where you literally request for your teammates to come provide opinions and perspectives on the work that you've done, and then together sort of agree that this is going into the main branch. So right. it's a very collaborative process, and yet many development teams sort of struggle with sort of facilitating that. When you were told that you're uncharacteristic for a software engineer, did you take that as a compliment or an insult? Because as you're explaining it, too, it sounds like maybe there was a little bit of misunderstanding on both ends on what characteristic even meant. <laughs> yeah, at the beginning, I think I found it to be a frustrating statement. But over time, mm -hmm. I kind of came to see it as a strength. And I'm different in a number of ways. I also don't have a traditional four-year computer science degree. And I think that that is a huge superpower because it allows me to come into teams think differently. I have the skill set of being able to, you know, code and write software, build specs, do architecture diagrams. But I also think about it from a background that's a little bit different than someone who studied pure computer science for four years. But that's part of the whole uncharacteristic stereotype. Well, and I'll even add in the fact that you spent obviously some time at Harvard Business School, but also some time in the VC space as a venture fellow at Pair VC. And I feel like that must have also maybe given you a different appreciation or approach towards now building a company in the space that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I just love looking at things from kind of all of the different perspectives. I think there's always, you know, the sort of tried and true pathway of a computer science degree to learn how to build software. And I think there's just so many other ways that you can look at problems. And when we're building products like we are today and the amount of innovation that we're bringing forward, we actually like require people to look at things from a different perspective. It's the beautiful part of building innovative products. We're going to talk about obviously what you're building now, but one quick question before that, which is when you're looking at different angles as a builder, is there one that you still haven't tackled, one that you're still hoping to get as an engineer? I know it's kind of a weird question, but I'm wondering if there's anything on the wish list. Yeah, I think the big thing that going to HBS really got me was some of the non-technical, non-product side of things. Like, for example, I did not have as much of an appreciation for marketing mm. until I was able to get exposed to some of the sort of topics we would cover at school. And I still haven't really gotten as much of the chance to practice it. I'm an early stage founder. And so most of the work that we're doing is really like founder-led sales, founder-led product. But that's definitely a place where I feel like I've just grown to appreciate and respect yeah. the art and science of marketing so much, but I never had any prior exposure to it from the world I came from. Yes. Okay. Well, I can talk about the importance of holistic understanding of all these problems forever, but let's enter in Quotient, which I've seen as described as the GPS system for new engineers. What's going on? And I know you are an engineer, but I still want to know, why are you starting with engineers for this company as well? Yeah. So kind of the goal of Quotient is to build this toolkit that powers an engineering team's most important processes, starting with onboarding. And if you take a step back, our vision is to really democratize access to the best engineering cultures, because a strong engineering culture is the key to pushing innovation forward faster. So that first product, onboarding, we're building this onboarding tool that sort of leverages world-class research and a unique user experience to ramp up engineers more effectively onto their teams. Okay. So what that looks like is managers can build and deliver a high-quality research-backed onboarding experience, and then they'll get data-driven insights into how their team grows and improves together. 
to answer your question on like why starting with engineers, yeah. over the last few years, there's been this sort of emergence of so many new tools and so many new places to go to ramp up to the role of software engineering. If you look back like 10, 15 years ago, you could have an understanding of like JavaScript, period, and be a completely successful software engineer in the scope of work that you're doing. But as we've sort of progressed and with the introduction of so many new SaaS tools, so many new deployment tools, a single engineer now has so much scope to sort of ramp up to when they get hired onto their roles. And so we really want to consolidate and create that GPS or that journey for new engineers to go on so that they can get access to the people, the processes, the tools, and the code to really get ramped up. Okay. We also think this is the most expensive problem right now within an organization in terms of ramping up talent. When you think about new engineers, the cost of sort of onboarding them poorly is pretty expensive for companies. It's around $20,000 when you bring in like the manual costs for managers and teammates, as well as sort of the lost productivity. And in a time like now where everyone's talking about increased productivity, doing more with less, this is a huge place where we can impact organizations and increase the tenure of engineers that stay on the team. Okay, that makes sense. I see in my show notes that as of December, there was around 1.5 million software roles that are left unfilled in the U.S. due to this talent shortage. So clearly a lot of work to do, but at the same time, I see that stat and I wonder why not recruitment? Why enter at onboarding instead of recruitment? It's really interesting because I actually was idea amazing in the sort of broader problem space of what are the bottlenecks that prevent us from building these strong, resilient, diverse engineering teams? Is it yeah. an external to internal problem or is it something else? And so originally, actually in a prior life to what Quotient is today, one of those idea maze experiments was thinking about hiring and building sort of a hiring marketplace that focuses on skills rather than credentials so that you can unlock a broader talent pool. But the further that I dug, the more I learned that improving those engineering processes internally, especially those that relate to improving collaboration and sense of belonging, actually increases team effectiveness and retention and then drastically reduces the need to hire more. So what you see happen today is there's a lot of tools out there solving hiring challenges, which are very real. Sure. But then you've got talent that comes in and then they stay maybe only one to two years before they leave. The average tenure of a software engineer is two years right now. Yeah. So it's kind of this leaky pipeline that just gets worse and worse. It's making me think so much about a conversation that was much more popular in 2021, which was, okay, the group resignation is happening. People are leaving their jobs voluntarily. And now companies are really desperate to retain. So we saw this huge onslaught of benefits startups. And now I'm so curious. I wish I knew you then because I would love to have heard your hot takes on if benefits are going to be what keeps people at companies. Clearly, there's other ways and reasons they leave based on everything that Quotient is up to. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's really interesting, too, because we're following trends in this current macroeconomic climate, which is very different than what we saw in 2021. And so what we're seeing is two things. One, we are still in a software engineering shortage. Okay. So even with the last few months of layoffs, we find ourselves in a market with high demand for software engineering, which is corroborated by the lower rates of engineers being laid off and the high percentage of engineering jobs, to your point, still on the market. Got it. The second really big, I guess, trend that we're following is that right now, one of the hot words in tech companies is efficiency. It's top of mind for all industries. There's this particular focus on how to improve developer efficiency. Yeah. And so teams are thinking a lot about inefficient processes that need to get optimized. And there's a movement to even flatten the engineering org. You're seeing Meta as a great example of this. 
where they're removing middle management layers within engineering and now thinking of, we've got the IC sort of coding layer, we've got a slimmed down management layer, and now we need to really fill in those process gaps so that we can build those efficient teams. Oh man, as you're describing that, I'm like just thinking about Twitter's engineering team right now and Mm -hmm. how much they probably could use some help in that category just based on this week alone. (laughs) They are working so hard. I have so much respect for Twitter engineers right now and every day, really. Yeah, seriously. Well, I want to hear what you think the right onboarding process is. As simple as you can be, I guess, because, you know, if it was that simple, I'm sure everyone would be doing it already. What is the right way to onboard an engineer in 2023? So there are three big goals of onboarding. And I credit our advisor, Konstantinos, for really helping us understand so much of this. His entire expertise is on the world of onboarding and newcomer socialization. So there's sort of three goals of anytime you ramp up new teammates, but especially in the engineering world. Yeah. The first one is general uncertainty reduction. So what is the task that I actually am here to do and how do I get all of the tools in the toolkit to do that? So usually your structured onboarding plan is meant to help everyone get those tools in that toolkit. But then the sort of two other big pieces are your sense of belonging within the group that you're in and your own self-expression. And so what we actually find, and this is pretty particularly interesting in like hybrid and remote work cultures is that even if task uncertainty has been resolved, so you know everything you need to do, if there isn't a focus on that sense of belonging or that self-expression, engineers feel really detached to the team that they're on. Sure. It becomes a very transactional experience, and that's inevitably what leads to that sort of higher turnover or just less effectiveness within the org because there isn't that sort of sense of bringing your full self to the organization and the team that you're working on when you collaborate. I hear this. I'm like, I agree with that, that, and that. At the same time, I'm like, oh my God, this must be a pain to measure. And I'm wondering if you've made any tweaks that specifically cater to engineers when tracking the effectiveness of you delivering on those three things. And I'm sure for the founders listening to this episode, let's say they're not using Quotient, how should they be thinking about it even if they're not using your startup? Yeah, there's a really great framework called SPACE. It's developed by Dr. Nicole Forsgren, Dr. Jenna Butler, and a number of other folks on the Microsoft research team. And it's basically this framework that allows you to think about what is developer productivity. But that's something that they think about a lot. It's an extension from a sort of previous framework called Dora Metrics, which many engineering teams use as well right now to measure effectiveness. But it's a bit antiquated in that it actually only looks at system-wide performance. It doesn't look at, you know, are the developers feeling that they have a high level of satisfaction? Is there high collaboration on those teams? And so space really covers that angle. It was released in 2021, so it's very new. And we've actually taken that sort of space framework and brought it into the work that we do in onboarding. So as an example, when engineers move through the onboarding experience, one of the things that we're looking at is on a qualitative perspective, pulsing new engineers to see how are you feeling as you are sort of ramping up to the organization and where are you spending your time gives us a really great proxy for Is the time being used most effectively? And are they moving from theory to practice as they move into their engineering roles? Another really great one is actually we've been able to pull some quantitative metrics that help serve as what we think could be an early proxy for sense of belonging. And that's a lot to do with your ecosystem of pull requests and sort of that collaborative environment. So seeing how new engineers become welcomed into the culture of code review and also seeing how teammates respond to their comments, their own code reviews is a really great way to sort of measure and understand if they're getting that sort of belonging, self-expression and that uncertainty reduction. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the age-old question around product market fit and really like what this time is for your company, 
I keep coming back to it because I wonder how much your opinion on engineers sounding different in what they care about and wanting to be team players is the reality you're seeing when you're going out to market and pitching the company. How far do you think the two realities are? Because clearly there's like enough of a world that believes that engineers need to be retained and need to be more efficient to use the word that everyone's obsessed with. But then at the same time, I always go back to what makes people eventually change their minds. Is the status quo of an engineer really being challenged right now? Yeah, behavior change is really hard. (laughs) It's a a really tough thing. And I think the interesting thing is those behavior changes don't happen so easily until there's sort of a big force. And so really, yeah, the really nice thing is that, again, as we see in the news time and time again, this return to work challenge, the hybrid remote culture is really sort of a big topic that is influencing that massive behavior change. I think that as we talk to companies, what we find is that there's overwhelm across a lot of of aspects of process management and team management because we're no longer in an in-person environment building that connective tissue with one another. And so especially when you have teammates join in a fully remote environment, a lot of teams have been trying to understand how can we improve that effectiveness. I don't think there's as much of a big disconnect so far in terms of like seeing this as a massive problem and wanting to solve it. We've actually found that a lot of companies are chipping away at their own sort of manual way of doing so. But that's why we turn to the research because it's really difficult to sort of become an expert on the research and then try and inject it into your product. And that's something that we can do as the sort of like experts of onboarding. So we make sure that our product development process, the templates that we bring forth for teammates and engineering managers to use actually is infused with that leading research that's being developed like in real time to understand collaboration in remote environments. Can you be specific with like an example of an insight that you'd give someone? Because I'm sure you could, you know, it'll blow some people's minds to know even how simple it could be to probably integrate that research. Yeah. So there's a couple that I can point to. One is it just, it is statistically proven time and time again that having an early one-on-one with your manager is a really massive indicator of success. So for new engineers who join their teams, having that one-on-one with their manager and even sort of whoever their support is within that team like leads to really high success outcomes. And yet we find that that is again, not in any malicious way, it can often fall onto the back burner and be like, ah, it's so busy. Check in with you at the end of the week. Easiest thing to cancel. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Exactly. You're like, with 30 minutes, like I need this two hour block of time to think. So that's one big piece of it. Another one that I've always really loved is kind of a, a mindset piece, but there's this really interesting paper that came out in 2020 on asynchronous collaboration for developer teams. So teams working across the world to collaborate on a single piece of software. And they talk about this thing called problem A and problem B. Problem A is the problem we've all come to solve. So we're building this feature. We need to put this together. Problem B is the interpersonal problem that comes with these individuals, these humans coming together to solve this problem. And what you often find is that teams that don't prioritize problem B end up moving at a much slower pace because they haven't solved essentially the question of how do we collaborate together. They're only solely focused on problem A. But when you actually acknowledge and work on problem B, you end up building a much more collaborative team in an asynchronous environment. As I hear that, I think about some of like the newer issues, let's say, that plague our workforces. And I would love to know how your vision lines up with tech versus just like businesses in general, because not every engineer is in tech. And I'm just thinking that some tech companies are like, I believe it. It's important. And I will do this. 
But a lot of this contrast with how tech inherently works, which is like, let's run really fast and only think about this when we have 70 engineers. And maybe that's mm-hmm. okay. But is that okay? I mean, yeah. <laughs> at what point? I mean, in a perfect world, everyone's thinking about this from day one, I'm sure. Yeah. I think the interesting trade-off is like, how much time do you have to manually deliver these processes, right? There are certain processes that in workplace culture, we've just sort of automated, like the process of HR doing all of the first day benefits, da 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 da, and yeah. moving into sort of that world. We've automated that because we just don't need human labor on that. I think for us, we're trying to move to a world where onboarding is this space where there's a technology that can help foster and improve that sense of belonging, self expression, and that task uncertainty. But it doesn't have to be done by a human being all the time. One of the mm. biggest pain points we hear from engineering managers is that it's really time consuming and there's no visibility into how it's going, right? So they'll spend all this time updating this static, long onboarding checklist, give it to their new engineer, and then usually they're just slacking them once a day saying, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? I have no idea. We're not sitting next to one another. And so if you can introduce a software in between the two that can basically facilitate creating that GPS, reduce that overwhelm for new engineers, and then help managers on the other side understand how it is going, that's the huge unlock. And so, you know, you don't have to have a team of 70 engineers to be there. You can really start from your first engineer, ramp them up more effectively, and then you basically get an insurance policy that that engineer feels more connected to the team and will stay longer in the organization. Okay, that makes more sense. As I hear that, I think about myself as someone who, for all over the world, I wish I could have a one-on-one with like most of the people at TC all the time. And even my sources, I think there's like this difference between what I wish and what I know would help versus what I can actively pull off. And I wonder, in terms of buy-in, because I totally understand why managers would want their organizations to be more efficient. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about engineers for a second who are maybe listening to this episode and they're like, yeah, but I don't have time. I just don't have time. I don't have time to think about it. I don't have time to think about software. And even if it makes my life better, I don't want to do it. And to anyone who maybe should be thinking more collectively but isn't, how do you as a human think about convincing someone? Or is it, you know, at a certain point, you can't really change someone if they don't want to? Oh, I think you totally can because there's evidence of that sort of pain all across the board. So from the perspective of a new engineer joining the team, they're in the you know highest incentive moment to learn as much as they can so they can feel productive and sort of reach their potential within the organization. And they tell us that they feel extremely overwhelmed. Sure. There's no prioritization and pacing. And like they're on an island in this remote world. So for them, the incentive is really high. But if you look at the sort of broader team, I think what's really interesting is that bad onboarding, to take onboarding as the specific example, actually impacts the entire team. There's this concept of team debt that comes from inefficient onboarding that ends up bleeding into needing the senior engineer or the mid-level engineer's time to explain concepts that should have been centralized and delivered in a much easier, more scalable format. And so not solving this problem basically just means that you are taking your like precious engineering resource time into repeatedly delivering that information over and over. It's kind of like the idea of having meetings for everything versus having documents for everything. You're like, at some point, instead of talking one-on-one in a meeting, we should put it in a doc and then deliver it and use the meeting time to basically follow up and have a more rich, nuanced discussion. We've seen a couple of kind of crazy examples where 
teams will basically silo their new engineer in like an island and say like, when you are, you know, perfectly ready to work, we'll bring you into the rest of the team. And that's their way of protecting their engineering team's time. But the problem is then the new engineer ramps up more slowly. It's more inefficient. It leads to higher turnover. And those three pillars are never actually met. Got it. And going back to maybe where we start with is like the personalities of engineers. How much pressure does that then put, if you're on an island, how much pressure does it put on them to be the kind of person who waves their hand saying, I need help. Like for me, within the first six months of a job, I'm not asking for out loud help. I mean, I should maybe change that philosophy a little bit, but you know, I would love to hear more on like the personality too, how people even can speak out loud. It's a really tough one because in team cultures, you always want to create this environment where people feel comfortable asking questions. But again, you have to think about what the incentives are. So when you're new, exactly like to your point, You don't want to shout to the mountaintops that you don't understand a topic because internally you're probably reflecting on if it's because the information is unclear or because you don't understand something, which is sort of a fault of your own. And so what we find is new engineers often withhold a lot of their questions and they go out and look for that online on the sort of resource documentation instead of reaching out to others. What's really interesting is we find in sort of our really early experiments, we found that using a tool actually disproportionately is was used more by the more diverse teammates and mm-hmm. new engineers that were joining. And we have a sort of hypothesis that this has to do with the fact that there is an even bigger hill to climb in terms of feeling comfortable reaching out to a team and asking for questions when you feel like an outgroup of the team because you're the only engineer or there's maybe only one other woman on the team. So it disproportionately impacts your more diverse talent is the leading hypothesis we have right now. Yeah, it's weird because it's like, in some ways too, I'm sure you don't want to overly other people who are already othered. And I'm sure there's not a negative signal with using software that's out there to help. At the same time, if there's people who are circumventing, does that create a weird signal of the people that want help versus don't want the help? Like that to me feels like an even bigger challenge down the road. I'm sure something you're thinking about. Yeah, it's totally something that we're thinking about. And I think we're just going to have to, you know, collect a lot of data and understand, like, how do these processes impact different types of people? And to your point, not to further outgroup and outgroup, but when you go back to sort of what is the mission of our company, we want to democratize access to the best engineering cultures because those are the cultures that build the best products. So it's really in everyone's best interest to be understanding how can I create a team where diversity of perspective is at the center of it so that we can truly innovate and bring forward the best products to the market. And because you think so thoughtfully about job roles, I want to like turn it inward a little bit. Are you trying to push the boundaries on any other jobs at this moment at the company, even in how you build, whether it's even a founder, a topic that's been coming up a lot for me recently is like, we should be thinking about leadership more collectively and not just the face of a founder. And I'm curious if you resonate with that or if that's something you've thought about too yeah, when building. Definitely. I think one of the really interesting things about quotient and just as a company more broadly is that we're already different in a number of ways just because you often don't see women building in these developer tooling kind of products. I think the one sort of massive example and sort of an idol that I have is Edith at LaunchDarkly, who's the CEO. And and it's an incredible company and they just think differently by design because of her leadership and the team's leadership. And so I think because of that, we're always sort of doing things a little bit differently. And I think that leadership should absolutely be a sort of collective thing. I 
would not be able to innovate in this way without my co-founder, Joe, for example. He previously co-founded and grew a company called Proletariat as CEO. And he went from building the product as the IC kind of engineer to building the engineering organization. And so we had met through a mutual connection and realized that we have two completely different perspectives on engineering teams, rather not perspectives, but lenses to look at engineering teams and this shared desire to improve engineering team culture. And in terms of like other roles that you're thinking of, does this change the way that you hire? Is there any other roles you can kind of tease out that you're thinking about this approach with? Yeah, I think the hiring question, I mean, we're often thinking about maybe this is just from my background and sort of the idea amazing that got me here. Everything is really about like skills and potential over credentials, which obviously as someone who came from Harvard Business School and like the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, like I know that credentials played a role into even getting us where we are here, but we truly believe in potential and ability to learn over anything else. And again, that sort of creates that diversity of perspective within our team. One really interesting thing about our engineering team is we have to be product oriented because the product is built for engineers. And so it's really important that our engineering team has buy-in as well. So that's another thing. And the final thing I'll say is just, I mentioned some of the research that sort of powers our work. I think like the early team that we're most excited right now about fostering and growing, because right now it's entirely founder-led, is sort of like a people analytics org where we're thinking about how do we find all of the leading research, understand and analyze what it means for a product, and then infuse that research into our product so that we can really deliver a great experience for our customers. Yeah. Oh, that would be super interesting. There's a lot. Because I think like people analytics is such a different question than like head of community. And we saw that role. No shade to that role. But I feel we saw that role really jump on the scene and then disappear Mm -hmm. over the past two news cycles. So I'm I definitely want to be updated on what you find there. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to see if you had any other numbers that you wanted to share around this engineering talent war and also onboarding in general. Is there anything else that you can share just to give people a little bit more context before we jump to lightning round? Yeah, I'm not sure if I had said this previously, but when you think about the value and ROI of good onboarding, for example, onboarding can actually improve retention gains by about 82%, which is pretty massive within an organization. And when you start to think about the world of engineering effectiveness, that is like one massive space where you have such a huge bang for your buck in terms of improving this process and then having this outcome of a stronger, resilient, more long-lasting engineering team. I can't stop thinking about the island metaphor you're using. And I feel like that stat just really sums it all up as to why that is important to pay attention to. Cool. Thank you so much for talking about all of this. Are you ready for lightning round? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Sounds good. So first off, my favorite question to ask is what would you be doing if you weren't the founder of Quotient right now? Such a good question. If I were to step outside of tech entirely, I think I'd be studying interior design. Ooh, okay. See, I am so happy I noticed the art now. Clearly, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. have a knack for it. Thank you. Love that. And you're not the first person who's told me this. So I think a lot of people have this eye. Number two is what's one thing you hope to see change in the tech industry this year? I'd love to see us bring more people together. I could talk about that topic forever and a story for sure coming that way. And then the last two, um, we'll end on a positive. So I'll start with what's the worst advice you've ever received? This can be personal or professional or both. (laughs) There's a mountain of personal advice, but professionally, I think that the best products just sell themselves. And finally, what is the best advice you've ever received? That community is everything and it takes a village to weather the storms. 
Thank you so much, Lizzie. This was a fantastic chat. Hopefully people are walking away with that with a better understanding of what onboarding looks like, specifically in the engineering world. It's not a word we talk about a ton on the podcast. And I've definitely changed my mind a little bit on the stereotypes of engineers. But with that, Lizzie, tell people where they can find you. You can find me at Twitter at Lizzie Matusa. It's just first name, last name. Also can email me Lizzie at GetQuotient. And then you can also go to GetQuotient.com to learn more about our company. We are releasing a few more spots on our wait list to folks in the coming weeks so that they can use our product. And so really excited to sort of see teams change and improve after using us. Yay. Oh, awesome timing then to have you on the show. Everyone else, I'm as always Natasha, yes, but on Twitter at Unmask underscore and on Instagram at Natasha the Reporter. We will be back on Friday with the OG crew. I'm I'm so excited. We'll chat then. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week. 